How goes the world? The world goes not well. But the kingdom comes. We know the king is coming. When we look around us, we see more and more the devastating effects of sin. It seems as if most, if not all, the world is on fire. It's so bad that it's hard to see how Jesus can wait any longer. We cry with the slain witnesses of chapter 6. How long, O Lord? The good news is that Jesus is always on time, never late. He is coming back to establish his kingdom on heaven and earth. In a new heaven and earth. Before that, there's a bit of cleaning up that needs to happen. Earth is still the realm of Babylon and the satanic power behind it. Back in chapter 15, verses 5 through 8 read, After this I looked, and the sanctuary of the tent of witness in heaven was opened. And out of the sanctuary came the seven angels with the seven plagues, clothed in pure bright linen with golden sashes around their chests. And one of the four living creatures gave to the seven angels seven golden bowls excuse me, full of the wrath of God who lives forever and ever. And the sanctuary was filled with smoke from the glory of God and from his power. And no one could enter the sanctuary until the seven plagues of the seven angels were finished. Now we know that the chapter divisions were made long after the apostle wrote this letter to the churches in Asia. So the last part of 15 would have flowed very easily and smoothly into chapter 16, which I think I, I think they blew it when they divided it up, but that's just me. First, let's look at how the angels are dressed. They're dressed in pure, bright linen. This harkens back to the clothes of the Levitical priests who wore pure white linen when they performed their duties. In Ezekiel and Daniel, there are depictions of men dressed in linen carrying out the priestly duties. Here we have angels dressed in white linen preparing to carry out priestly duties. Verse 7 states that the seven angels are given bowls. Well, bowls are used in the Old Testament as part of the worship. These aren't just cereal bowls. But they're set apart for ritualistic, religious purposes. The bowls are mentioned 12 times in Revelation. And most of these have to do with the heavenly throne room. So what are these bowls for? Well, in the Old Testament rituals, they were many times used to carry the ashes and fat of the sacrifice outside, away from the sacred space, removing any impurity. A lot of the worship, a lot of the sacrifices that were done were to keep the sacred space pure. So when people came to worship God, they did not defile it. In Ezekiel, um, I'm sorry, The symbolism here is that the earth is going to be purified by removing the defilement. It's going to be sanctified 
and made ready for the Messiah. So when he comes back to earth, he will be coming to sacred space. Verse 8 states the sanctuary was filled with smoke and no one was able to enter it until the seven angels were finished. Ezekiel 10 verses 2 to 4 says, He said to the man clothed in linen, Go in among the whirling wheels underneath the cherubim. Fill your hands with burning coals from between the cherubim and scatter them over the city. And he went in before my eyes. Now the cherubim were standing on the south side of the house when the man went in, and a cloud filled the inner court. And the glory of the Lord went up from the cherub to the threshold of the house. And the house was filled with the cloud, and the court was filled with the brightness of the glory of the Lord. That no one could enter the heavenly temple is reminiscent of First Kings. When the priest came out of the holy place, a cloud filled the house of the Lord, so that the priest could not stand to minister because of the cloud, for the glory of the Lord filled the house of the Lord. One commentator writes, God cannot be approached at the moment when he is revealing himself in all the terrors of his indignation. So chapter 15 has kind of laid the backdrop for what is to come next. The earth is being purified and made ready for the return of its creator. It's being prepared to be sacred space again. In verse 1, we hear a loud voice from the temple telling the seven angels to pour out on the earth the bowls of the wrath of God. Now, the wrath of God principally has two aspects. First, God allows human wickedness to work itself out and reap its own destruction. You get what you pay for, in other words. Second, God steps in directly to stop it. We're seeing both of these in this chapter. What we are not seeing is a capricious and bad-tempered tyrant or a passive leader. This is the God who created the world and who shows his generous love through the sacrifice of his son. Maybe hard to reconcile, but both things there are true. The seven bowls, like the seven trumpets, are reminiscent of the plagues of Egypt. The world under the dominion of Satan and Babylon is like the oppressive reign of Pharaoh. What is affected by the trumpets and the bowls is pretty much the same. The difference is that each of the trumpet judgments affected only a third of what they touched. The bowls bring complete and utter ruin. The trumpets were warnings, while the plagues of the bowls are total. The opportunity for repentance is gone. That's kind of heavy words. The first bowl is poured out on the earth. Those afflicted by this and the other bowls are those who have taken the mark of the beast. They have continued to throw their lot in with Satan, Babylon, and its rulers, rejecting the true king. Now they will share in their judgment. The first bowl causes harmful and painful sores on those who follow the beast and worship its image. In Exodus 9, we read, It shall become fine dust over all the land of Egypt, 
and become boils breaking out in sores on men and beasts throughout all the land of Egypt. So they took some soot from the kiln and stood before Pharaoh. And Moses threw it in the air, and it became boils breaking out in sores on man and beast. And the magicians could not stand before Moses because of the boils. For the boils came upon the magicians and upon all the Egyptians. They have taken the mark of the beast. Now they're marked with God, by God with these boils. Both the second and third bowls are reminiscent of Exodus chapter 7. It's kind of a long passage, but I think it's, it's relevant. Then the Lord said to Moses, Pharaoh's heart is hardened. He refuses to let the people go. Go to Pharaoh in the morning as he is going out to the water. Stand on the bank of the Nile to meet him, and take in your hand the staff that turned into a serpent. And ye shall say to him, The Lord, the God of the Hebrews, sent me to you, saying, Let my people go, that they may serve me in the wilderness. But so far you have not obeyed. Thus says the Lord, By this you shall know that I am the Lord. Behold, with the staff that is in my hand, I will strike the water that is in the Nile, and it shall turn to blood. The fish in the Nile shall die, and the Nile will stink, and the Egyptians will grow weary of drinking water from the Nile. And the Lord said to Moses, Say to Aaron, Take your staff and stretch out your hand over the waters of Egypt, over their rivers, their canals, their ponds, and all their pools of water, so that they may become blood. And there shall be blood throughout all the land of Egypt, even in vessels of wood and in vessels of stone. Moses and Aaron did as the Lord commanded. In the sight of Pharaoh and in the sight of his servants, he lifted up the staff and struck the water in the Nile. And all the water in the Nile turned into blood. The fish in the Nile died and the Nile stank so that the Egyptians could not drink water from the Nile. There was blood throughout all the land of Egypt. But the magicians of Egypt did the same by their own secret arts. So Pharaoh's heart remained hardened, and he would not listen to them, as the Lord had said. Pharaoh turned and went into his house, and he did not take even this to heart. All the Egyptians dug along the Nile for water to drink, for they could not drink the water of the Nile. The second bowl is poured out on the sea, and everything in it dies. All of the water in the seas is totally putrefied. Some commentators see the sea as presenting humanity. So this vision shows a putrefication of a dead society. Commentator G.K. Beale states, These judgments have to do with the downfall of Babylon, the world system, and that the bloodying of the seas is the judgment on the world system in the economic sphere. The first beast came from the sea, and his mark had an economic effect upon his servants. They could neither buy nor sell without it. This judgment then would be the destruction of the economy of Babylon. In chapter 18, which we'll get to in a few weeks, describes the fall of Babylon and the economic devastation. And part of this chapter reads, The merchants of the earth weep and mourn for her, since no one buys their cargo anymore. 
The merchants of these wares who gain wealth from her will stand far off in fear of her torment, weeping and mourning aloud. Alas, alas, for that great city that was clothed in fine linen, in purple and scarlet, adorned with gold, with jewels and with with pearls. For in a single hour, all this wealth has been laid waste. All shipmasters and seafaring men, sailors and all whose trade is on the sea stood afar off. In verses 4 through 7, we read of the fourth bowl that is poured out on those who have taken the mark of the beast. This bowl is emptied on the rivers and springs of water, turning them to blood. In Revelation and other passages of Scripture, the waters often refer to humanity. And I believe that this is the case here. The reference to the waters being poisoned and polluted symbolically expresses that those who have taken the mark of the beast are the ones afflicted. Some of this language, waters, sand of the sea, the sea itself, gets used elsewhere in the book for people, for the mass of nations opposed to God. All through scripture, we see the nations opposing Israel are under the dominion of hostile supernatural forces. People who are being judged in the first bowl, so it makes sense that it is people who are being judged in the second and third. The target is not dirt, water, or grass. It's people who take the mark and give their allegiance to the beast. The angel of the water says, Just are you, Holy One, who is and who was, for you brought these judgments, for they have shed the blood of saints and prophets, and you have given them blood to drink. It is what they deserve. This alludes back to Psalm 79. This is a psalm after um, or when Babylon was in control had destroyed Jerusalem. O God, the nations have come into your inheritance. They have defiled your holy temple. They have laid Jerusalem in ruins. They have given the bodies of your servants to the birds of the heavens for food, the flesh of your faithful to the beasts of the earth. They have poured out their blood like water all around Jerusalem, and there was no one to bury them. We have become a taunt to our neighbors, mocked and derided by those around us. How long, O Lord, will you be angry forever? Will your jealousy burn like fire? Pour out your anger on the nations that do not know you and on the kingdoms that do not call upon your name. For they have devoured Jacob and laid waste his habitation. Do not remember against us our former iniquities. Let your compassion come speedily to meet us, for we are brought very low. Help us, O God of our salvation, for the glory of your name. Deliver us and atone for our sins. For your name's sake. Why should the nation say, where is their God? Let the avenging of the outpoured blood of your servants be known among the nations before our eyes. Again, this judgment is on those who take the mark of the beast, who are allied with Babylon. What Babylon did to the people of Israel is now being done to Babylon and those who follow it. The altar answers, yes, Lord God, the Almighty, true and just are your judgments. 
The altar is associated in verse 9 with the prayers of the saints for justice to be done. The trumpet judgments were sent to warn the wicked to repent. The bowls are the final answer to those prayers as God pours out his vengeance upon Babylon and those allied with it. What John is describing is the defeat of the ultimate chaos agent Babylon and the nations who follow Babylon. Verses 8 and 9 read, The fourth angel poured out his bowl on the sun, and it was allowed to scorch people with fire. They were scorched by the fierce heat, and they cursed the name of God, who had power over these plagues. They did not repent and give him glory. The fourth bowl is poured out on the sun, and the sun turns from a nice warming object in the sky into something that emits great heat, scorching those on the earth. Those suffering because of this bowl still refuse to repent and glorify God, instead cursing him. The first bowls, first four bowls that have been poured out have been poured out on the earth and the sun. And some believe that these judgments are literal. Commentators on and Beale believe that the fourth and seventh judgments are more symbolic. In ancient Greek thought, everything was made up of four elements, earth, water, fire, and air. So what John writes about is that, that the totality of God's judgment on all the earth in its elemental sense. In other words, he's leaving nothing out. The entire earth is affected by it, and all the followers of the beast will be judged. All of these judgments being poured out on those have taken the mark on the nations. But they're also targeting the beast and the powers behind the nations, leading up to the return of Jesus. This is when all the small g gods will be destroyed. The beast itself will be destroyed. And finally, Satan will be destroyed. Deuteronomy 32, 43 says, Rejoice with him, O heavens. Bow down to him, all gods, small g gods. For he avenges the blood of his children and takes vengeance on his adversaries. He repays those who hate him and cleanses his people's land. In verse 10, the fifth bowl is poured out on the throne of the beast. So what does this mean? Is this a particular city or place? In John's day, it was easy to think of the throne of the beast to be Rome. Some commentators see it as applying to pagan Rome and to all the anti-God forces in the earth. Others see the throne and the kingdom as representing the beast's sovereignty over his entire realm. The fifth bowl affects the beast's ability to rule. Now, this bowl is reminiscent of the plague of darkness in Egypt. In Exodus 10, the Lord said to Moses, Stretch out your hand toward heaven, that there may be darkness over the land of Egypt, a darkness to be felt. So Moses stretched out his hand toward heaven, and there was pitch darkness in all the land of Egypt for three days. They did not see one another nor did anyone rise from his place for three days. But all the people of Israel had light where they lived. 
uh, comment, commentators on and Beale again, they describe this as a typical apocalyptic event. <clears throat> there are a number of Old Testament passages, Isaiah 13, Joel 2 and 3, Amos 8, Habakkuk 3, who talk about this. Darkness is a symbol of judgment in 1 Samuel 2. Amos 5, Joel 2, and Zephaniah 1. Somehow the darkness is so complete that it causes such excruciating pain that the people gnaw their tongues. Have you ever accidentally bit your tongue? It hurts. So these people are in, in this plague are hurting so bad in the darkness that they're chewing on their own tongues because it feels better, I guess. Now, I would take this as metaphorical, that the darkness causes pain because it reminds them of their separation from God, the source of light. Quoting Beale again, God causes all who follow the beast to have times of anguish and horror when they realize that they are in spiritual darkness, that they are separated from God, and that eternal darkness awaits them. The temporal judgment here is a precursor of the final judgment when unbelievers will be cast into the outer darkness where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth as in Matthew 8, 22 and 25. The New Testament passages associate darkness with pain and refer to the place of eternal separation from God. The sixth bowl is poured out on the Euphrates River and the water is dried up, preparing the way for the kings of the east. Now, who are the kings of the east? Well, some have said that this verse is speak of, speaking of China or some other eastern empire. In John's day, the empire to the east was Parthia. The Euphrates River formed its boundary. So other commentators would say that this is hearkening back to the fall of Babylon when the Persians came, dried up the Euphrates River, basically, and walked under the wall into Babylon to conquer it. The Romans feared an invasion from the east, from Parthia. There was even a rumor that Nero, after he had killed himself, had not really committed suicide or had been resurrected and would lead an invasion of Rome from the east. So John's readers would have had this picture in their mind of this kingdom from the east. Some commentators see Nero as symbolic of the last oppressor of the people of God. Some see the kings of the east as symbolic of an army coming to fight on God's side in a final battle. I believe seeing these kings of the east as fighting on God's side just doesn't fit with the description of the seven bowls as the judgment of God. This is speaking of Babylon. All throughout history, it is Babylon, in different forms, that has been the chief enemy of God and his people. From the Tower of Babel onward, the rebellious powers and the nations they control have tried to destroy the people of God. In verse 13, we see three unclean spirits, like frogs. They're lying spirits that come from the mouths of the dragon, the beast, and the false prophet. 
Remember in 1 Kings 22, the unclean spirit convinced Ahab to go into battle into which he was killed. These spirits are going to convince the rulers of the entire world to go to battle where they will be destroyed. Excuse me. It's that time of year. Verse 15 reminds me of a story I was told back in Bible college. When the school was in another city in a seminary, they were talking, class was talking about Revelation. And they had just got it had just got to the part where it talks about the trumpet being, being sounded. And one of the students had fallen asleep. So the professor, who was a, a bit of a, a, bit of a, a wisecracker, told everybody to quietly leave the classroom, <laughs> to leave their notebooks and bo- books open on their desks, drop the pencils on the floor, on the desk, whatever. And then after they left, they, they got a guy with a trumpet. So he came in and blew one long blast on the trumpet. The sleeping student woke up, and they said his face turned white. <laughs> when he looked, and nobody was there. Well, Jesus, in the middle of this talk of, ju- of judgment, says, Behold, I am coming as a thief. Now, we don't know whether it's in the night And we'll wish we'd all been ready or not. But behold, I am coming as a thief. Blessed is he who watches and keeps his garments, lest he walk naked and they see his shame. I think what Jesus is saying here, stay awake. Be aware of what is going on. Because justice is coming. And it is going to roll down like a river. In verse 16, the unclean spirits draw the Antichrist forces to a place called Armageddon, or in Greek, Armageddon. The literal meaning is Mount Megiddo. Now, there is a town called Megiddo up in kind of the north of Israel where some major battles happened in ancient times. But there's no mountain there. Mountains nearby, but not there in Megiddo. Some commentators believe that because it would be unusual for John to use a specific place name, he's referring to the anti-God powers being brought to one place. Michael Heiser believed that John is speaking of the Harmod, the place of the divine council. What city on earth is associated the most with God? Jerusalem. It's not Washington. Mount Zion, it's all coming down to who finally is going to sit on the throne of Zion, the cosmic mountain. Is Babylon going to again conquer like it did? Well, we know the answer to that. Verses 17 to 21 brings the judgments to an end with the pouring out of the seventh bowl. Some, com- excuse me, some commentators see this as a climactic summary of the bowls with the addition of great hailstones. The bowl is poured out into the air. The air is symbolic of the realm of Satan. Ephesians 2.2 calls Satan the prince of the power of the air. And a loud voice calls out, it is done. There are thunders and lightning and a great earthquake. 
John is careful to state that this earthquake is greater than any earthquake ever. The great city Babylon is split into three parts, and the cities of the nations are destroyed, bringing anti-God civilization to an end. Babylon is remembered, possibly referring to a question that has lingered among God's people. Has God forgotten about the sins of the wicked? God has not forgotten. And now it's time for Satan and evil to be judged and destroyed. This may be the shaking predicted in Haggai 2, 6 and expounded in Hebrews 12. At that time, his voice shook the earth. But now he has promised, yet once more I will shake not only the earth, but also the heavens. This phrase, yet once more, indicates the removal of things that are shaken. That is, things that have been made, in order that the things that cannot be shaken may remain. Verse 21 describes great hailstones, about 100 pounds in weight, falling on the earth. Now, I don't believe these are literal hailstones. They would essentially grind into dust anything that they hit. Can you imagine a 100-pound object coming from the skies and hitting something? It would obliterate it. This probably echoes Isaiah 28:17, which speaks of the hail that will sweep away the refuge of lies. This is a picture of the final judgment when in the words of one commentator, the entire empire of evil is destroyed and it goes down into utter ruin. You know what is sad? Is that the chapter ends with those who follow the beast still refusing to repent but blaspheming God because of the hail. In the next four chapters, we're going to read about the final destruction and the judgment of the beast and those who follow him. How goes the world? No, it doesn't. The world definitely goes not well, but the kingdom comes. We don't know if all the upheaval we see around us is just the beginning of the birth pangs or if God will continue to show mercy to the world. May God help us to be awake to what is going on around us as we seek to have a faithful presence in our world.